We have read about the prophecy of the cross. We have sang songs about the power of the cross. Now I want us to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and think about the reconciliation which God accomplished through the cross. Likely this is a a very familiar verse for many, if not most of us, though perhaps not all of us, I would assume not all of us are very familiar with this verse. It's a verse that uh, is often one of the first ones that you'll ever memorize. I think when I read it, you'll be very familiar with it, most of you. I don't necessarily think, though probably will happen, but I don't necessarily think I'm going to teach you something necessarily all that new to you, but what I want us to do is to think about what hopefully is familiar to you already. What I want us to do is meditate, to chew on this verse so that we can taste its sweetness. Would you please please follow along with me as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and then I'll pray and ask the Lord's help for that meditation. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we approach your word, you would help us. Help us to understand, help us to comprehend, help us to be in awe of what you have done in your son. We pray, God, that for those of us who are in Christ already, that this would be something that would cause our hearts to leap for joy. And I pray for those who are not in Christ, that this would be the day that you save them, that you would open their eyes to the beauty of what you've done for them, of the reconciliation that they could have, of the reality that you don't dangle salvation just out of reach from us, but in Christ, your arms are open wide for anyone who is tired and weary and heavy laden, and they can find rest in you. Lord, help us all to find rest in you. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I said, what I want to do tonight is to together meditate on this verse that is, as I mentioned, so often one of the very first ones that is memorized by a a new Christian Uh, One that is very familiar and certainly very sweet to us as Christians. I want to do that by pointing out three specific meditations for us to help us treasure the cross of Christ. And since it's only one verse, and since I'm a nerd sometimes, I want to follow the word order in the Greek. And so I'm going to actually have a translation up there on the screen uh, if that causes any type of uh, seizures or anything for you, just look at your Bibles instead and, and you'll be all right. 
Here's the translation of this verse, would be kind of a more literal, straightforward translation. And I, I, want to, I want to work from that because I want to follow the emphasis and the word order that Paul was getting across. Uh, again, I, I don't really like the ESV translation here because Paul doesn't start with us. Paul starts with the sinless one. And so here is, the, here is a more straightforward translation of this passage. The one who did not know sin, on our behalf, he made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I want to follow that word order and I want to follow that thought, that flow of thought to point out for us these three different meditations that help us to treasure the cross of Christ. Now, the reality is we could come up with 53 meditations or 103 meditations, but I want to point out to you three specific meditations. And the first two have to do with the Holy Trinity himself. First of all, I want to point out to us the perfection of the Son. The perfection of the Son. Paul has been breaking down for the Corinthians the, the validity of his ministry as they've been trying to eat him like a pack of wild wolves. He over and over again has poured his heart out to them and he, he tells them about the message of the cross and he tells them that they need to be centered on that message just like he is centered on that message because he himself is all about the reconciliation of God in Christ. You see, Paul understands as he has had his eyes opened by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in, a, in an experience that none of us have certainly had, but if you're a Christian, you have surely had the very same thing happen to you. You may not have seen Jesus with your physical eyes, but the Holy Spirit has opened the eyes of your heart and you know Jesus has been crucified for your sins and is Raised, has been raised to walk once again, to give life to all. So Paul has been explaining this ministry of reconciliation to the Corinthians because he wants them to understand that rather than attack him and fight amongst one another, what they need to do is focus on what God is focused on. And so he's been explaining this idea, and finally in verse 21, he gets to how this reconciliation is accomplished, and he wants the Corinthians, first of all, and God wants us tonight, first of all, to understand that the reconciliation of God starts first with the perfect Son of God. The one in whom there is no sin, and not just there is no sin, but the one who did not no sin. Paul highlights the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ. Something that we're very familiar with, right? That's a tale as old as time for Christians. We understand Jesus did not commit any sins. But I want us to think more deeply and more specifically about that reality. Because here's the truth. At the cross, 
Christ took on himself what he did not deserve in order to give you, Christian, what you do not deserve. So we can think of, first of all, and this is Paul's point here, but first of all, we, we need to think about Jesus' sinless humanity. The name Jesus has not always been the Son of God's name. That was his name in, when he took on flesh. That was the name that the angel said that Joseph was to give him because he would save his people from their sins. And so in his humanity, as we've been walking through the gospel of Mark, we can see it over and over and over again. Jesus is perfectly spotless without any blot, without any blemish whatsoever, without any sin, not just a sin coming from his mouth or from his actions, but no sin at any time within the depths of his heart because he is pure. He is not intimately acquainted with sin You know it well, we read it earlier, Isaiah 53, 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is the testimony of scripture over and over and over again. First Peter 2, 22 to 23, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Familiar to us, right? But let's pull back the veil of Jesus' flesh. Let's look past the man, Jesus, to the very Son of God himself. You're familiar with John chapter 1. John chapter 1, John does that very thing. He pulls back the curtains of the flesh of Jesus Christ. He tells us what was going on in eternity past before anything was made. There was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this God did not need anything from anyone because he was completely satisfied within himself, sharing perfect perfect love perfect righteousness, perfect joy amongst the persons of the Trinity. It wasn't as though God needed to make something so that then he could start loving that thing. But it was that within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, within that perfect fellowship, within that sinless union, within what is holy, It could not be contained and so the love that was shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit flowed out of him and that was creation. 
fundamentally, God is triune, even more than he is creator. And so John 1, 1 1-4 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And yet on the cross, men tried to snuff out the light. John continues to explain, and down in verse 14, this word has a name. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What glory does Jesus bear in his flesh? Certainly his own glory, but also the very glory of his Father. Verse 18, John continues to unfold this beautiful, unthinkable reality for us. He says, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. Because you know from the Old Testament what happens if you see God. You die. Yet, listen to what John says. The only begotten God who is at the Father's side or more literally in the Father's bosom. He has made him known. You've not seen God. But John is saying, but you've seen the only begotten Son of God. And in seeing the only begotten Son of God, you've seen God. You see, we are tempted to think of God in human terms. We read the word son of God and we think naturally what sons are like in our world. But when we try to compare God to creation, God to man, what happens is we take God off of his throne and we bring him down to the level of the creature and we mistakenly think that he is somehow like us when the reality is he is holy. And so when we, when we read about the only begotten son of God, don't think like a father-son relationship between human beings. It's the father-son relationship in hum, between human beings that mimics the father-son relationship between the Trinity. Why are there fathers and why are there sons? Because we are made in the image of God. Because we reflect God. But we can't do it perfectly because, guess what? We're not God. And so what John is doing in John chapter 1 is unfolding for us that when you think about the Son of God, what you need to think about is God, the second person of the Trinity, who is so close, so closely united with his Father that he's in his bosom. You're familiar with that language. Remember how, how God made woman? 
He put Adam to sleep and he took a rib from his side or from his bosom to reflect the closeness that a husband and a wife share together. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of the father and the son. Yet it's only a picture. It can't perfectly reflect the beauty and the glory of the father and the son. But it's a sign. Yet another sign screaming to us, there is a God and he's good. So of course, of course Jesus did not know sin. He couldn't. He couldn't. Even in the taking on of flesh, even in the entering into a fallen world where everything is corrupted by sin, Jesus was never infected or afflicted with sin. He is the one in whom there is no sin. The Nicene Creed, if you grew up in a In a more traditional setting, you may be familiar with the Nicene Creed. The first two stanzas of the Nicene Creed say this, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. That is who Jesus is. He is the one who did not know sin. You're familiar with that word know. In the Bible, it's often used to describe when a husband knows his wife and they have a child. It's not a mental acknowledgement of the reality. Certainly, Jesus was mentally aware of sin. It's an intimate acquaintance with it. Jesus has no intimate acquaintance with sin in himself. And yet, he was the very one whom the Father made sin On our behalf. The one in whom there is no imperfection was crushed for the ones in whom there is no perfection. And this leads us then to the second meditation, not just the perfection of the Son, but secondly, the pleasure of the Father. The pleasure of the Father. We'll follow along in our translation. The one who did not know sin, on our behalf, he made sin. In case you're wondering who the he is, it's not the son. The son is the one who did not know sin, but now John brings in, or or Paul rather, brings in another person into this mix to say that he made him sin. Verse 20 makes it crystal clear who the he is. In verse 20, Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Who's the he who made the one who knew no sin to be sin? It is God the Father. 
And isn't this exactly what we read in Isaiah 52 and 53? I, I take the language of the, the pleasure of the Father from Isaiah 53 verse 10. Where there it says that it pleased the Father to crush his son. It pleased him to crush his son. It wasn't just that he, he really, really, really didn't want to, but he saw no other way. No, the Bible says it was, it was his pleasure to crush his son. hard to chew on, isn't it? Because again, we naturally think in human terms. What good father would crush his son? But we can't think in human terms, can we? We have to think in the revealed word of God. Charles Spurgeon calls this the grandest transaction which ever took place on earth, the most wonderful sight that even hell ever beheld, and the most stupendous marvel that heaven itself ever executed. Jesus Christ made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But it was not as though the father derived some sick pleasure from seeing his son suffer. And it wasn't even that the father derived some type of pleasure for seeing sin punished. It pleased the father to crush his son because this was the only way that the father could give his son a people to inherit. That's why it pleased the father to crush his son. Isaiah 53, 10 After saying that the Lord was pleased to crush him, it goes on to say, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, the cross, he shall see his offspring. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Who's the he there? It's Jesus. When Jesus' soul makes an offering for guilt, Jesus will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. You see, it was the only way that the son, that the father could give the son the inheritance that the father had always planned, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It was the only way to secure that inheritance by crushing the son. I quoted earlier in Matthew 1, 21, the angel tells Joseph about Mary's pregnancy and says to him, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Not people from their sins, his people. John loves this concept, John six thirty nine, and this is, this is Jesus and this is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. Jesus says, this is the will of the father that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 17, one to two, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. You see the idea? The father has given the son a people. But there has to be an atonement accomplished in order for the son to take those people to himself. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 1, 17 to 18, when he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Whose inheritance? His inheritance. We get an inheritance, but in Christ, we are his inheritance. It pleased the father to crush his son because without the crushing of the son, we could not be the son's inheritance. So the father and the son and the spirit could see the big picture. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It pleased the father to crush the son because this was the only way that the son could get the inheritance that the father had secured for him. And one day the son will present that inheritance to his father and he will sing over his people. He will say to his father, these are my brothers and my sisters. Which is why Paul says he did it on our behalf. How exactly did the father make the son sin? Well, it can't be that somehow on the cross, the son turned into a sinner. Because Paul has just said, the one who did not know sin. But rather, this is the theological idea of imputation. The sinless one is hung on the cross and the father imputes or transfers or credits the sins of the people that the father has already given to him onto the son. And if you're wondering how that happens, join the club. It's one of the great mysteries of God. God, how did you do that? And I would guess the response would be, well, I could tell you, but you wouldn't understand. So instead, he just says, he made him sin. On the cross, Jesus was not just mistreated by Romans and Jews, but on the cross, the Father took the sins of all of the son's people and dumped them onto the son. So that the son would pay for them. 
And yet the reason he was able to pay for them because he is the one who knew not any sin. You see, sin was placed on him, but sin did not come from his heart. Jesus has always fulfilled the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Perfectly obeying that even while he was being crushed for your sins. And yet it pleased the Father. And it makes then it makes then those people, the people whom the Father has given to the Son, it makes them no longer identified by their own unrighteousness, but now identified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this leads us to our final meditation. The perfection of the Son, the pleasure of the Father, and now the position of the Christian. Paul finishes his explanation of reconciliation with a purpose clause The one who did not know sin on our behalf, he made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, who's the we there? Who's who's Paul talking to? A church. It's not the world that he's talking about. It's Christians. It's those who are no longer in Adam, but in the son now, in Jesus It's those who are no longer dead in their sins, but now by faith have been justified by the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's think a little bit about our natural condition. You know, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter three, verses nine to 10 give, I think the most vivid and disgusting picture of your natural condition outside of Christ. Paul says, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Outside of Christ, that's you. And yet if you're not willing to take that upon yourself, then you cannot take the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon yourself either. If it is not fair that in Adam all sinned, if it is not fair that Adam's sin is imputed or credited to you so that from the womb you are a sinner, if that's not fair, then it's not fair that the righteous perfection of Jesus Christ gets credited to you by faith. You see, you can't have the righteousness of Jesus Christ without acknowledging the unrighteous heart that you have. A 
Our text in 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that Christ was sinless, yet made to be sin. But Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ was sinless and was made to be sin. We are sinful, and yet Christ still died for us. Our text tells us that Jesus did not know sin, but Romans 7, 7 says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Jesus has no intimate acquaintance, personal experience with sin, but that's all that we have. Personal experience and intimate acquaintance with sin. You see, contrary to what the world says, we are not naturally good. Nor are we a blank slate to be determined by fate regarding whether or not we'll be a good person or a bad person. No, the reality is we are corrupted by sin even before we come out of our mother's womb. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You've heard of product recalls before. Salmonella or, I don't know, some kind of, something was going on in the lettuce field somewhere and Massive recalls of lettuce or massive recalls of chicken or massive recalls of vitamins, whatever it is, a recall happens because it's discovered that there was something that corrupted the whole process in the factory. Friends, God has issued a divine recall because of our sin. And the only solution for that divine recall, the only solution for the corruption of our sin is Jesus Christ. And yet God holds him out to be taken by all who would come to him in faith. So let's just stop right there and ask ourselves, have I embraced that? Or do I kick against that? Do I understand that there is nothing, nothing good in me? Or do I think, well, I'm not as bad as that person? You know, probably not the person sitting next to you, but you know, like Adolf Hitler or something. Friends, that is unbiblical. And it will send you to hell. And rather than receive the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ rather than let Jesus take the wrath of God for you. If, if, if that is your philosophy, if that is your worldview, if you, if you have a, any inkling that there's something good in you, then the reality is you will face the wrath of God. But let's talk about our new identity. That's who we are and that's why we needed the one who knew not any sin in order to to, to be made sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But look back up to verse 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, another verse very familiar to you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You see that phrase, in 
Christ. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Or verse 21, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, that makes all the difference in the world. Whether you're in Adam or you're in Christ, that's the great divide for the whole human race. If you're still in your sins, or if you've been transferred into the kingdom of God's Son. But what does Paul make crystal clear has happened to the Christian? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Notice he doesn't just say so that we might be considered righteous. But whose righteousness does he say we are attributed with? The righteousness which belongs to God. And how does that righteousness which belongs to God come to us? It comes to us by being in him, in Jesus. And how are we in Jesus? We are in Jesus by repenting of our sins and believing the gospel of Jesus. We are in Jesus by recognizing our natural condition is as rebels against God, yet God sent his son. So that his son would take on the punishment for his people. And so rather than now being seen for the sinner that you are, even though you still wrestle with the flesh, even though you're simultaneously still a sinner, even though you'll let yourself down and you'll displease God, rather than being seen for those things that you do, God now sees you as if you had lived the perfect righteous life of Jesus. even if you didn't read your Bible today. Even if evangelism is a struggle for you. You see, dear Christian, you might still battle with the flesh, you might still be a sinner in this life, but the fact of the matter is that when God sees you in Christ, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son. Because when Christ was on the cross, he saw the imperfect sinfulness of you and all of his people. So let me ask you then, do you live like that? Do you live your Christian life in the peace and security that comes with the justification of, by faith in Christ? Or do you continue to put back on the chains of your own attempts at self-righteousness? Yes, we should feel convicted when we sin. But I wasn't kidding when I said that even if you didn't read your Bible today, God is just as pleased with you. Why? Because his pleasure with you, Christian, doesn't depend on you. It depends upon his son. The righteous deeds that you muster up as a Christian can't compare to the righteous deeds of the son. And it's not as though you get saved and then God says, okay, take it from here. See you in a few years when I welcome you into heaven. No, what does Paul say? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
The sins of the people of God get imputed, transferred onto Christ on the cross. Christ raises from the grave, rises from the dead because sin can't hold him because he's not a sinner. And now by faith, all who believe in Jesus get his righteousness transferred to them. That's better even than just forgiveness. Because he doesn't just bring your, your righteousness, your spiritual bank account back up to zero when it was bankrupt. He takes it all the way up into the infinite riches of God in Christ. You're rich in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, Christian. And it's not just okay to enjoy it. It is right to enjoy it. You are a new creation in Christ. And one day, you will see the full culmination of that at the resurrection. You know the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, and you may know the story of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Horatio Spafford wrote that while he was on the boat that was taking him from Chicago, or maybe it was New York, he, lived, he was from Chicago, over to England to meet his wife, who had gone over before he had gone with their four daughters in order to join an evangelistic trip led by D.L. Moody. The boat hit another boat in the middle of the night and sank, and all four of his daughters died. As the boat passed by the spot where the captain thought the ship had sank, he let Horatio Spafford know, and he went out onto the deck and looked out on the waters. You can imagine the boat gliding over the watery graves of his daughter's bodies at the bottom of the ocean. And it said that he went back to his room and penned the words, it is well with my soul. The first verse says, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's good, isn't it? But let me remind you of verse three. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. How does the Christian get through life? By being infatuated with the work of God in Christ. By seeing that their their sins are forgiven. And not just that their sins are forgiven, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ is now counted to them, even though they did nothing to deserve it and everything to not deserve it. Jesus, on the cross, went from riches to rags so that you, dear sinner, could go from rags to riches. Verse 